Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different from our usual explorations. We're following up on a great conversation we had in an earlier uh, weekly listener mail segment. Here's the deal. Shout out to Durs. Shout out to Durs. Not the Atlanta Durs. There's a guy named Durs in Atlanta who looks like a wizard, like straight up Gandalf. You've got to meet him one day. He does excellent <laughs> postcard art. I'll, I'll, totally, I will introduce you guys. Uh, you may have met him already, Noel. But um, but here's the deal. Folks, Durs, fellow conspiracy realist, the world as we know it has been around way, 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 way longer than human beings and way longer than their ancestors. Humans are sort of a fad and kind of disrespectful guest. That's not a hot take. That's just objectively true. Earth also doesn't really need people. When their population was relatively small, they fit in. 
the same way another apex predator would fit into its natural biome or ecosystem. But that has changed, and it, the change is only escalating as uh, humanity grows and embiggens its technological pursuits. In short, civilization <laughs> is reaching a breaking point, or it's already past it, which is my personal belief. So today we are looking at a plan, a philosophy, a movement, a set of practices that, according to its proponents, may just help save the world, or at the very least, keep it going a little while longer. And before we introduce this plan, which uh, we can't wait to talk about with you, uh, we've got to we've got to give you some of the ugly ugly truths. So here are the facts: uh, the world's in trouble. Doesn't matter who you vote for. Doesn't matter if you're an atheist or you have really, you know, deeply held spiritual beliefs uh, up the wrong river without the right paddle. That is planet Earth. And I was hoping everything was fine. This is horrible news. Yeah, it's not fine. Uh, If you look to especially the American West, if you look to uh, Europe, the United Kingdom, areas across the world, you can really see the effects that are happening now that are happening throughout the year, every year now. And ramping up uh, in the cold weather, in the hot weather, in the dry weather, in the wet weather, all the weather. Uh, it's just uh, not not doing us any favors. Um, and that's likely because we we haven't really been doing the planet many favors. No, we sure haven't. I mean, we're starting to see, uh, you know, things like water and, and natural resources become the ultimate currency. And if you look, you know, down the line to the future, it's not that hard to imagine a world where people are literally killing each other over these resources as they become more and more scarce and climates become less and less habitable. Yes. Yeah, 100 percent. So what's happening here is uh, this is happening in South Asia and Southeast Asia throughout Indonesia. Uh, a lot of places that were wet are dry. A lot of places that are supposed to be dry are unseasonably wet. As we record right now, uh, there is one country that may be the first country ever uh, to go completely underwater in the modern days. That is the Maldives or Maldives. Uh, this, I'm, I've been off the grid. As you guys know, we, we don't really talk about a lot of this stuff on air, but I've been off the grid and I've been traveling in places where the weather is famously different from what it's supposed to be, right? I've been in a place um, for, I've been traveling through a couple of different places in a part of the world that's normally sort of dismal and wet. And for for a while over the summer, people loved that it wasn't raining because they could go out and have fun with, you know, their kids and their pets and stuff. But now they're getting to that oh snap moment where they're thinking, oh, right, the plants kind of need that water. So what we're seeing are short-term short-term enjoyment, long-term consequences. And for a while, for a while, people were fine to ignore them. The first conspiracy, which I, I feel like everybody should acknowledge these days, is that many of the scientists, the boffins, the eggheads, the academics, whatever you want to call them, that uh, said the climate was just fine or downplayed the extremity of environmental degradation, they were in fact paid to lie. They were paid by large corporations, you know, chemical manufacturers, energy companies to uh, to try to politicize the problem, to say that, you know, for some reason, caring about water makes you uh, far left 
or whatever, or that if you're far right, you shouldn't care what happens to the soil that makes the food that you and your family eat. They were very successful about this. They were downplaying pollution. They tried to throw a veneer of normalcy, the the dog and the burning house meme vibe. They tried to throw that over an increasingly chaotic climate. And even they had to know, right? They had to know that couldn't work forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it didn't. Well, actually, it's still kind of working today because a lot of the messaging that was put out there, as you kind of stated there, Ben, was to muddy the message, to muddy the science, to make sure people believed that the science was always out on climate change. We don't know for sure what's happening with it. We don't know for sure if humans had anything to do with it. Uh, So let's just continue on as we're continuing on and not think about it too much. So as of 2021, um, we've got some pretty good data from the pre-industrial era, you know, when the, the you know, kind of the advent of like serious pollution um, to the, the right now. Uh, the global temperature has, in fact, this is this is a thing. This is real. This is not some sort of, you know, uh, liberal conjecture. <laughs> Um, it has increased by about 1.2 degrees Celsius, uh, or the much more shocking uh, to Americans anyway, 34.16 degrees Fahrenheit. We had to stop for a second and do a double take and make sure the math was right. It is right. It doesn't seem like much, but it also, uh, it's kind of significant. Um, it's, it's a big deal. It's quite extraordinary. The world's oceans alone are actually absorbing the heat equivalent of five atomic bomb drops, like Hiroshima atomic bombs, dropping into the water every single second. Think about the vast amount of energy one atomic bomb generates. This is five of those dropping into the water every single second, just from atmospheric conditions just from like ambient heat yeah it's just the heat it's it's getting hot and uh not not in a cool like party on the weekend way take off uh, all your clothes like, kind of way right well you might it, it is getting hot in here you might have to as a matter of survival uh but <laughs> we'll We'll talk so about hot. wet bulb. <laughs> yeah, we'll off. talk about wet bulb temperature. Uh, we we talked about that in a previous episode, so check that out if you want to be depressed. So these conspiracies are real. Don't ever forget this goes deeper than a government's debt, right? So to add to this, a lot of modern industries are only exacerbating the problem, and they are doing so knowingly. Logging is a huge issue in some of the world's last large green spaces. If wet bulb temperature doesn't depress you enough, if you still feel like you have a spark of optimism or you're having fun one day, then check out what's happening to the Amazon. Uh, There's deforestation, of course, in other places, massive massive irrigation projects, uh, pollution, industrial byproducts. Uh, I just read recently that if you get Uh, If you get chicken eggs from a city, like, you know, your friends have a chicken coop or something, they're likely to have 40% more lead than than eggs out in the countryside. It's in everybody. Plastics and everything. Yeah. Yum, yum. Uh, Mono agriculture, you know, like the way people grow bananas, the reason the first commercial banana crop went extinct, aka the reason banana candy doesn't taste like the bananas you get now, uh, mono agriculture robs ecosystems of their natural checks and balances. These are very old systems that have existed long before humans started futzing around under the hood. They make these feedback loops where farmers 
and agribusiness rely increasingly on artificial solutions to problems that uh, they themselves have arguably created, you know, like think of neonicotinoids and pesticides. Extinctions running rampant, you know, um, this the generations listening now may be some of the last generations to be around when certain large wild animals were still wild and on this side of the ground. There's a ripple effect every time a species dies. Look, the game can't go on forever unless we find some solutions. And this is where, you know, this is the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully, for the true believers, right? They, like, we know all these solutions. Reduce, reuse, recycle. What are the other ones? Oh, oh, paper straws. I sound like a jerk. Sorry. Stop, drop, and roll. Yeah. Oh, no, that's different. Yeah. Yes. Uh, conserve. Your energy use, your water use, your heat use, everything. Like, just cut back as much as you can. Everybody. The thing is, everybody doesn't always do it. Yeah. Maybe don't water your golf course, you know, uh, quite as exorbitantly. Oh, wait, you have to. It's like, how, else, how else will we have golf courses? Hey, don't I and look, the almonds? It's a sunk cost, all right. I bought the almond farm and the golf course, and one day I'm going to learn to play golf. So I need that thing ready. I need I need the water. It's a sunk cost. It's it's a it's a sunk putt, baby. That's what it <laughs> is. Get on that green. It's not green without water. Otherwise, it's the brown. That's not cool. Nobody wants to putt on the brown. Has there ever been an exclusive high-level astroturfed golf course? Like the whole thing is like a mini putt-putt course? Surely they've made leaps and bounds in astroturf technology. <laughs> like they could do that. It's just a flex to not do that. I don't know the answer. I, I bet top golf and places like that, you know, like for driving ranges, that's probably not real grass. I'm sure it's more like those are like the batting cages of golf. But yeah, it's absurd how many how much resources and energy and you know landscaping and water get literally poured into what amounts to like a you know, playground for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mention this because uh, there is a controversy. There has been a push to have AstroTurf or artificial turf golf courses, but athletes, uh, golfers, you know, and uh, a lot of the golfing enthusiasts are a bit traditionalist in their view. They prefer the natural grass, uh, even though it could be used to, you know, grow crops. Stuff like that, but when not to yuck someone's yum, just realize there are there. We are of the mind on this show that there's almost always a way around a problem. There is a solution, and the three of us have been in crazy situations where we found weird innovations of our own, um, <laughs> which might be a story for a live show. All the weird stuff we've gotten into, but but yeah, there, there's a lot of um, what people call misallocation of things, right? Misprioritization of wants and needs. There are golf courses aplenty that do suck up a lot of water uh, while there are people dying from lack of potable water, lack of clean water. And there are these corporate initiatives that come around that purport to uh, address these concerns, right? Uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Often they put the burden of the action on the consumer rather than taking accountability as a as the business creating the problem 
right? Now it's not our fault that we've made so many microplastics and seeded them in the ocean. It's your fault, you dick, because you drink with plastic straws. That's that's the implication. Yeah. It's not our fault that there's Teflon falling from the skies in Antarctica. Hey, why'd you buy all those pots and pans? Come on. But those other straws get all soggy like a pasta noodle. They're weird. You know, can't give me my plastic straw. I'm kidding. They've made leaps and bounds once again in, in non-plastic straw technology. I keep using this term and I'm going to keep using it. Yeah, I'm going to. You know what I love about this one is I can see just the way that automobile companies vilified pedestrians back in the day by creating the crime of jaywalking. I can see I could see some of the big plastic movers uh, vilifying people by creating the crime of slow drinking. The problem's not the paper straw. It's all these slow drinkers. You know what I mean? <laughs> Does your uh, family slow drink? Call this number. You could be part of the problem. Report your loved ones for slow drinking. Um, have you seen, you know, at bars where you get those really tiny straws and like it, it takes like four of them to amount to a regular straw? <laughs> Those are kind of designed for slow drinking, if you think about it. Okay, so that's the real problem. We're done with this episode then. It's slow drinking. Guys, yeah, drink faster. Drinking faster is the new drink responsibly. That's not going to come back to bite us. Well, okay, here's the thing. There's so many solutions, many of which are proposed in good faith, and a lot of them address one aspect of this bigger Gordian knot of what the hell do people do to continue living on the planet. Um, this is where our story, this is where our story comes in, because there's one solution that we had talked about, an approach you could say of philosophy. It's made a lot of waves in recent decades. It comes to us courtesy of our friends down under. Uh, it comes from Australia and Tasmania. It's something known as permaculture, a portmanteau of permanent agriculture and permanent culture. And permaculture is going to be kind of confusing to people, I think, when you first are introduced to it because it's sort of a gestalt whole system approach. Uh, it's a – I don't know. Um, let's see. It's it's the idea that you can create a, um, a means of integrating human activity with natural surroundings, creating a highly efficient, self-sustaining ecosystem so that humans, instead of trying to impose change on an ecosystem, right? We only grow bananas here now, even though it used to be uh, a very biodiverse jungle. Uh, instead, you say, we are going to fit ourselves into this system. We're going to become a helpful part of it. Pretty, you know, beautiful, right? Circle of life and so on. Yeah. Well, even even down to the concept of we don't need grass lawns anymore, anywhere. We can use the, like you said, the ecosystem that existed in wherever that place is and just make sure that ecosystem thrives. And you can make it beautiful. You can grow things on there like uh, the flowers you want or the food even that you could eat. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting philosophy uh, that, like you said, Ben, really does focus on using what's there and not destroying the living system that already flourishes. Is this like a biodome type situation? Like, are we talking greenhouse, like hot houses and things like that? Or Not at like, all. No. Okay. Maybe I'm not quite getting my head around. Like, uh, where do you, well, yeah, a little bit, right? Like, where? I mean, if you don't have a lawn, 
what are you using? Are you using like planter boxes or you're like, like raised beds, you know, like, like what are we talking modifying about? Modifying the, it's modifying the, uh, existing gr- like, uh, plants that grow in that area to however you want them. Like you could, you can change what grows where kind of, but it's also working. Uh, well, let's get into it. Well, let's, yeah, here's what I mean. But when I say, when I say it's kind of like a, a greenhouse, it's like earth as a big greenhouse. And there are a series of oh, yeah. interrelated sections or neighborhoods, we could call them, uh, that, that sort of edge into one another and overlap. Edges are big in the concept of, of permaculture. Uh, it's, this idea also has some surprising overlap with some precepts carved in the recently demolished Georgia Guidestones, the, notably the idea that humanity, one way or another, should strive to exist in balance with nature. That gave a lot of folks who are worried about uh, population control and eugenics uh, a slight eye twitch. And you should have a slight eye twitch, folks. Uh, this, at heart, sounds like a noble aspiration, but we have to ask, why is it encountered so much criticism over the years, over the decades? We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive in. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Here's where it gets crazy. Okay, we 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 said some feel good stuff, right? We 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 talked about the problems. I think we were pretty realistic. Uh, so, how what? Okay, background. What what is permaculture? I spent a ton of time reading about this, and people agree vaguely, but not specifically all the time. It's it's a philosophical thing, right, Ben? So much like a philosophy class, it's like, well, nobody really, you know, has nailed this concept fully down, but we got a vague idea. We got a thought cloud around it. Well, I mean, well, let's start with the originator, perhaps, of the thought cloud. It's, it's a dude um, from uh, Tasmania. You sort of mentioned that at the top of the show, Ben, that we're, we're borrowing a lot of these ideas from our brethren in uh, Australia and Tasmania. This guy's name is Bill Mollison, uh, who was born in 1928 in a little fishing village called Stanley in Tasmania. Uh, sounds very quaint. I love a quaint fishing village named Stanley, like villages named after people. Always, you know, I like cats named after people. Why not villages? Um, Mollison, he left school early uh, in his life, and he took to, you know, to becoming a tradesman. Uh, he worked for a number of uh, varying jobs uh, before he, you know, found his, like, true calling. He was a baker. He worked in a mill. He was a, 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 a seaman, you know, at, at sea. With, I don't know if he was a captain. I guess he was just, like, maybe a, a sailor, you know. Uh, he was a trapper. Uh, even for a little while, he fished, uh, but exclusively for sharks. That's That's tough. Are we sure he wasn't just jumping into the oceans with a knife to fight the sharks? Like, are, are we sure? Or, or jumping over sharks on a jet ski, like, uh, like in the Happy Days uh, series finale. Yeah. Or maybe he was getting fish for the sharks. You know, he might have just been like right. the moving, moving the the prey for the sharks. You know, his his demo might have been there's like customers might have been great whites. Sharks are apparently not super good eaten. Because they're just so they're not, sinewy. No. They're like one big muscle. Yeah, they're real, all dark meat and, and kind of just gamey is my understanding. A lot of omniv omnivorous animals don't taste especially great. That's the reason why in English people say to eat crow as <laughs> meaning as, you know, you have to like, uh, uh, you have to have some humble pie or whatever. You had to eat a trash bird. And I, you guys know, I love corvids. Uh, they're very, very intelligent, uh, but they taste like garbage because they eat garbage. Same with foxes, mm -hmm. uh, big garbage. catfish. Yeah. yeah. Garbage so, in, garbage out. Yeah. Exactly. Well, like, just we like so. catfish, though, but you got to fry the hell out of it, right? What's is that like? What it takes? Yeah, you got to get them small. The bigger they are, at least in my experience, the less tasty they are. Uh, but let us know. Your mileage may vary. So, yeah, you, you describe it so perfectly. He is a jack of all trades for a while. Is Mullison, and eventually he goes to a place called the Wildlife Survey Section of Australia's science research organization, something called CSIRO. And 
Then he spends time at the Inland Fisheries Commission of Tasmania. Uh, so he's there for more than a decade. And this leads him to uh, kind of a bit of a uh, walkabout, I guess. It's a reflective period in his life. He spends a lot of time mostly solitary in the wilderness of Tasmania. He learns about the forest. He has intimate understanding of the coastal ecosystems. And his life continues, but this leaves a huge mark on him. In 1968, he becomes a tutor at the University of Tasmania, and then later he becomes the senior lecturer in environmental psychology, which sounds pretty interesting if you read that on a syllabus, right? Uh, while, he's, while he's teaching there, yeah, while he's teaching there, he meets up with his Padawan, uh, the guy who will become his uh, co-creator of permaculture. His name is Dave. David Holmgren is a student at the Tasmanian College of Advanced Education, and together, pardon the pun, they will sow the seeds of permaculture because they start asking themselves all these questions. They say, okay, wait, 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 hold up, pump the brakes, scratch the record. Why does humanity impose all these short-term goals on fragile ecosystems? Why don't we just crib the research that the natural world has already done for millions of years? It's created these entire systems. Why don't we just work with what already works, make sustainable ways of creating food with long-term, less damaging solutions? Uh, why don't we work within the system, right, and only change it a little when we need to? This this really hit me, you guys, because as we see, we see that mimic, mimicry of the natural world is increasingly becoming the forefront of technology in multiple fields. At some point uh, in any given number of disciplines, especially in engineering, some bright mind says, hang on, the solution to this already exists in nature, right? There's a reason eggs are spherical or, uh, you know, uh, there's a reason that hexagons are in beehives, stuff like that. So why don't we, like spider silk is already a better ingredient for bulletproof vest. Why don't we just do that? So that's what they're doing. They're taking this idea and they're saying, why don't we just do the stuff that was already well figured out before humans came on the scene? Exactly. It's amazing. And, and that's not the only thing, right? So they've got Nature systems and how they work already, why don't we use those? And why don't we look to the past a little bit to see how humanity has been manipulating the earth before we came up with all this industrialization, with all these machines that have to do one thing for one crop and then get as many, you know, many pieces of corn out of the earth as we possibly can every year. So these guys, uh, what are their names? Mullison and Holmgren. They're like, they're the modern movement guys, right? But if you look... Uh, a little bit further back to just an all-around badass guy, George Washington Carver, uh, while he was working at the Tuskegee Institute, he developed ways to, instead of just planting one crop all the time in this one plot of land, he was developing crop rotation strategies. And the whole point was to make sure the soil that the crops were going to be grown in, as you rotate crops out, get new kinds of nutrients in that soil. And each one that you put in next is gaining benefits from the crop that was in there beforehand, right? And it, you just kind of continue that cycle. 
and this was focused uh, very much so on uh, basically the American South, like Southern farmlands that were existing and thriving at the time when uh, when he was working on this. But they needed help. You know, what what do we need to add to this soil to make sure that these crops are going to be fruitful? Well, hey, what if we just cycle crops through? Yeah, making Avengers, right? Why don't we Why don't we Voltron? Mm-hmm these things up. That's the problem with mono agriculture, right? Because plants take different things from the soil and they bring different things to the soil. So if you have one crop taking the same thing all the time and giving the same stuff all the time, eventually the dirt's going to go bad, which sounds so Southern Gothic, but that's part of where it comes from. The soil is sour. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> yep, in Maine as well. I, I always hear that in that Fred Gwynn voice, yeah. But it's true. I, I mean, it's it, 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 it can be depleted, you know? The, 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 the dirt needs to have these nutrients, and if you rotate them out, like you're saying, Ben, um, one thing is depleted in one cycle, and then it's renewed in the next, and vice versa. And that's why that's important, that crop rotation is like a really uh, um, absolute game changer in agriculture when this was kind of, you know, figured out. Yeah, and the game was changed thousands and thousands of years ago in places across the planet. Isn't that crazy? People, <laughs> yeah, people figured out crop rotation uh, in the uh, over in the United States uh, for millennia. Uh, multiple multiple Native American communities knew about this. I, I'm thinking particularly of something that always fascinated me at least. The the It's a concept called intercropping, which is a little bit different from crop rotation. Uh, intercropping is where these folks would grow things at the same time because they figured out these crops complement each other's strengths and weaknesses, the stuff they give and the stuff they take. So the most famous of these are the Three Sisters, Uh, Corn, basically, (laughs) beans and squash. Uh, Maize or corn is infamous for being a nitrogen vampire. It will take, uh, it wants all the nitrogen out of the dirt. But beans, on the other hand, put nitrogen back into the soil. And so when you plant these and you plant these along with squash, what you're doing is you're making up for a disadvantage of one, right? And you get a little bit of insurance because, hey, your squash crop goes bad. Don't worry. You were growing, uh, you were growing corn and beans in the same acre. So you're going to be okay. You're going to have something to eat. And modern scientists looked back and said, actually, this intercropping, this growing stuff at the same time, instead of switching, you know, year to year, or season to season, this is way better than modern mono agricultural practices. You get more energy, more protein, get more bang for your landscaping buck. So again, we see that not every solution need be brand spanking new. And just maybe ancient civilizations knew more than modern society likes to give them credit for. Uh, And this is something big in permaculture. Like you were saying, Matt, if we maybe the best way to explain this idea without it sounding too like preachy or PR ish uh, or vague and woo woo is for us to just enumerate the principles or the axioms, the guiding tenets or ethics of permaculture. They're just three. It's pretty simple uh, until you get to the third one. Yeah, and they really do. We, we mentioned this when we uh, when we talked about. 
uh, Anders Durs Durs is as uh, email. Um, they are very Guidestonesy kind of philosophical tenets, and it is possible to to enter the woo uh, if, if if you're not careful. Um, but but they are also very sensible, like you said, been up to a point when then it starts to you know, maybe generate a few questions. But first one, care of the earth. You know, that's, that's some classic day one Earth Day stuff. Uh, provision for all life systems to continue and multiply. Um, then we cover, you know, people who live on the Earth and the care of people. Provision for people to access those resources uh, necessary for their existence. So they can also, you know, continue and multiply, presumably. Um, then then here's a guidestonesy bit. That's the one, baby. Setting limits to population and consumption. By governing our own needs, we can set resources aside to further the above principles. Hmm. Yeah, Mollison and Holmgren are like, stop banging! Stop banging each other! (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Uh, not, they're, they're not really. I mean, wow. they're they're saying they're saying let's let's not treat humanity as this Ponzi scheme that always has to expand, right? And they, they're you know they're thinking of this in the late nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah. Always shoot for a surplus, right? Always. And and when you have surplus, spread it around. Don't just take it for whatever profit or whatever you're thinking about using it for. Sure. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound very American. That sounds like communist talk there. What? Well, share the surplus. Yeah, it does a that's little not, bit. That's not how we do business in this country. We <laughs> hoard the surplus. A little bit red. You guys are getting a little bit red. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's true. And we'll, we'll run into one of, that's one of the issues that critics have actually. But this, if we just look at it structurally, like we apply structural thought to this in, in an objective way, then what we're going to see is this is an example of what is sometimes confusingly called whole system thinking, a gestalt effect, right? So um, an example of this would be – or a counter counterexample of this would be in a lot of modern farming techniques, you're going to see – one kind of plant being grown, right? One kind of crop. Anything that anything else that's growing there is a weed or it's counter to that purpose. And maybe further, maybe you are a farmer who's growing a crop and you only want the edible part. You say, I don't really have a use for these stems and these sticks and whatever, right? Uh, and that is an example of kind of single system thinking. I want this one thing. I will move all the variables such that it produces this one thing I want and the rest be damned. Uh, The idea of permaculture, at least as advanced by Mollison in his 1978 book, Permaculture One, is this, it's a kind of beautiful idea. It's the idea that you can watch closely over time how the system already works. And if you do that, you can find ways to help it work for you without breaking the whole crazy Rube Goldberg-esque mousetrap that is every ecosystem, right? Without accidentally triggering a domino effect, you can say, this is what this animal does. 
this is how it affects these other things in the chain, and this is what this plant does and how it affects these other things, and here's where I fit in. I can get in here as a human being, meet my needs, and then also maybe, ideally, help the system overall, right? I can play a part in this cycle instead of just saying, well, this has been going okay for millions of years, but I want to grow corn. Nothing to see here. Nice ecosystem you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Um, it makes me think of this film. Uh, I think you guys have both seen it. We may have talked about a fantastic fungi or fungi. Um, just about like, you know, it's about psilocybin and psychedelic mushrooms. But the thing that's most fascinating to me about it is just how complex the system that mushrooms are a part of is. That they, they are designed to return decaying matter back into the system and, and turn them into like fertilizer that then enriches the soil and then it comes back around and they communicate through this like crazy subterranean networks of like fibers you know and all this stuff and it really is kind of like kind of psychedelic in and of itself just the, how this, this stuff works so well without us it doesn't need us if anything we're like a wrench in the works so I, I do like this idea of like look at these incredible complex systems that that do not require us at all and they work better than anything we could have ever like you know figured out on our own so why not just play nice and be a part of the solution instead of always trying to play god and, and change things you know mm-hmm. agreed I mean, you can tell already, too, that this pursuit, this concept of permaculture is then, by its very nature, it's multidisciplinary, meaning it incorporates all sorts of stuff. It's, it's, it's grabbing um, – it's like if you are a permaculturist, you're sort of like uh, that guy Girl Talk who remixes all these parts of uh, various songs, right, into a seamless, coherent narrative. A permaculture practitioner takes pieces of meteorology, biochemistry, integrated farming, organic farming, uh, agroforestry, even physics, and they put it all together to say, what can I apply to this context? And permaculture is very much all about context. We're going to see one of the main criticisms of it depends on this. Uh, there's, we can get into this a little more too. In addition to those three ethics, um, there's another book, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, where Dave I guess I shouldn't call him Dave. We haven't met. David Holmgren lays out 12 uh, more specific principles. Uh, I don't know if we want to list them all, but they're they're, they're pretty basic stuff and they're still kind of high-level systemic things. It's all about observation, when to intervene, how. I think we should put this in, at least to some extent, maybe we could just read it really quickly because this is totally. the stuff that Durr's was focused on with the, the company that he created that we talked about in that uh, listener mail episode. So I think I, I think this could be important. Well, let's round robin them then. Uh, Matt, why don't you do the honors? Sure. Number one is to observe and interact. And that just means taking time to engage with nature in whatever place you're, you're looking at, you know, changing and using permaculture on to design solutions that suit a particular situation. 
it's neat too. Some of these can be applied philosophically to other disciplines too, to speak to the whole interdisciplinary nature of the thing. Like this one, catch and store energy, develop systems that collect resources at peak abundance for use in times of need. Like you can apply that to, you know, um, solar power and the idea of being able to store solar power in a grid or in batteries or whatever to use later, which obviously is difficult, but it is, you know, a, a concept that could be applied to broader things other than just, you know, crops. Or in this case, often water. Right. Like, like, like capturing water in a rain barrel or things like that. There's lots of things that you can do that would be very helpful. All right. So I, I would just uh, blaze through the next two because these are kind of short. Uh, obtain a yield. Emphasize projects that generate meaningful rewards. That can apply to anything in your life. Uh, four, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. Discourage inappropriate activity to ensure that systems function well. <laughs> no inappropriate activity here. <laughs> right. This Behave. has an anthropocentric <laughs> aspect, right, where you could say, hey, buddy, stop. I know you love petunias or something, but they don't belong here and stop planting them just because you think they're pretty. But it also has a structural implication where you could say, for instance, um, we need to discourage the growth of this thing because it is maybe invasive or it's not helping the ecosystem, right? I'd be very interested to see what permaculture experts think of kudzu in the American South, which is oh, just an amazing just story. just thinking that. <laughs> oh, or what is it, starlings? Like, wasn't it like some like, uh, like Shakespeare aficionado or mega Shakespeare fans that introduced starlings? And it was a massive, <laughs> massive mistake. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Right, so let's move on, guys. Uh, number five is use and value renewable resources and services. Makes sense. I mean, we, we get that. Uh, reduce consumption and dependence on non-renewable resources. Done. And this one, I'm going to go to the next one, guys. Produce no waste. Value and employ all available resources. Waste nothing. Pretty standard tenet. Uh, we've got next design from patterns to details. I like this one. Um, observe patterns in nature and society and use them to inform designs. Later, adding details. This is so neat. Like I, I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by just the, the nature of complex systems. And what are we, if not like in a web of like one of the most complex systems, you know, in all of creation, which is like the, the natural world. Um, and if you, pull back and zoom out and take a look at how the systems work, like with the mushrooms and the decaying and all of that, you can kind of get a sense of how you can apply these systems to like other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then next there would be integrate rather than segregate, which I quite like. Uh, the concept is proper designs allow relationships to develop between design elements, allowing them to work together to support each other. So in agricultural terms, that's saying don't have one field for corn, do the three sisters approach, try some intercropping. It's a, it's a rising tide carries all vessels sort of philosophy applied to ecology, which is pretty brilliant in my opinion. And it even has to do with design elements, what it even says in there, which is really interesting to me. Uh, I, I'm sorry, guys, that I have such a small scope on this, but I just I went to Durer's website and looked at some of the projects he's worked on. And this concept of, uh, of integrating, even in the design, right, not even the actual crops or, or the plants that are being put in certain places, it's just how it looks, where 
where the earth is moved up and where it's moved down and how water actually flows through the system when, when it rains now because of how it was designed. It's fascinating stuff. The next one is use small and slow solutions. Uh, small and slow systems, it says, are easier to maintain. Makes sense. And uh, they make better use of local resources and they produce more sustainable outcomes. Uh, next, we have use and value diversity. Diversity reduces system level vulnerability to threats and fully exploits its environment. Mm -hmm. And then we have, uh, I had mentioned this earlier, use edges and value the marginal. The border between things is where the most interesting events take place. Any amphibian can assure you. That's me editorializing. Is that like a liminal space, Ben? It very much is, Matt. It is very much like a liminal <laughs> space. Thank you. Uh, these, are, these are often the system's most valuable, diverse, and productive elements. And again, this, like, you could be an interior designer, and you could hear these things and think 100%, yes, this is what I aim for. Uh, because we are talking high-level, uh, structural, systemic analytical thought here. So I would love to hear people, uh, fellow conspiracy realists from different disciplines, uh, talk about, uh, tell us how this applies to some of your work. Uh, I think this also counts for engineering, designing a car. Yeah, you want to figure out all of these things. Um, maybe let's end on the last one. There, there's one more uh, 12th commandment. Uh, well, there's, there's, you know, they call it design principle, but this is an important one. Creatively use and respond to change. A positive impact on inevitable change comes from careful observation followed by well-timed intervention. Listen twice, speak once. That's pretty much what this means, right? Uh, so it's uh, – or measure twice, cut once. All right. So these are, these are things that we can all agree are good ideas, perhaps – outside of the bounds of agriculture and sustainability as well. These can work for any number of disciplines. Here's the coolest part, though. If you look around the world, around the planet, since humans have been there, which isn't, you know, the longest time, you'll see that in almost every civilization, there are examples of techniques that have later been folded into the concept of permaculture. It goes far past the three sisters. It goes far past... Carver and the idea of crop rotation. We're talking rainwater harvesting, vermicomposting, using, you know, the creepy crawlies to do some of the, <laughs> some of the breakdown for you. Uh, people have been thinking about this concept independently across the span of time and across the span of geography for, again, thousands of years. This isn't a new idea. And with all that in mind, permaculture doesn't seem too unreasonable, right? As the Georgia Guidestones once said, leave room for nature. Uh, unfortunately- Twice. Right, twice. They hit that one twice. Uh, unfortunately, permaculture does have its fair share of critics. And not all of these critics are um, coming with reasons that might be immediately apparent to you. We just want to make sure you know not all of them are Captain Planet villains. Not all of them are huge corporations saying mono agriculture and slash and burn is the only way to grow stuff. We're going to take a pause for a word from our sponsors and then we'll return with critics and controversy of permaculture. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We're back. All right, so to put it bluntly, just to rip this Band-Aid off real quick, a lot of the criticism comes from people in those specific scientific fields that, uh, from which permaculture extracts a little bit, right? And they'll, they'll tell you that there is either a lack of scientific basis for this and saying that, you know, really get some permaculture experts up in arms or to put it bluntly, they'll say it's not very practical. And we'll get to that last idea in the moment, but maybe we talk about the um, scientific evidence or perceived lack thereof first. Okay, so first, um, let's talk about one of the dings on permaculture in the idea that it lacks scientific basis. It lacks scientific evidence. Uh, Mollison was, by many accounts, not 
particularly interested in the academic side of permaculture. Uh, you know, that obviously would require peer review and data and, you know, things like sciencey stuff. That was not really his bag. He was much more into the philosophy of it all. Um, he did create the permaculture design course, uh, the PDC, um, but he wanted it to be super accessible. He actually was against kind of the exclusivity of academia. He wanted it to be accessible to, you know, average people because these are the people that, that you know, he thought would be the most valuable in instituting this kind of stuff. It needed to be widely accessible. Um, he didn't want to lock it up behind some sort of like institutional paywall. Uh, but um, according to the Permaculture Research Institute, this was a problem to some. And possibly, uh, likely a reason that it didn't catch on in a greater you know, um, educational kind of framework, you know, in terms of like being taught at schools because it had this air of pseudoscience about it, um, which doesn't fly in, in institutions of higher learning or even like medium learning. Well, yeah. And it is weird the way that the term permaculture means so many different things to different people. If you look at online forums and stuff, have you guys noticed uh, that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, it's, that's one of the things I think I was, uh, I was whinging about when we started here. Yes, uh, what is what is permaculture? Is a rose? Is a rose? Is a rose? Right? Uh, whatever. So yeah, one of the one of the issues here, and I say this as someone who is not a fan of gatekeeping knowledge in any way, and I have a profoundly deep conviction uh, that the concept of an ivory tower often does more harm than good. Right when you think about the advancement and the spread of knowledge, but one thing academia does really well is to impose standards, hopefully uniform standards, so that everybody can grow together. Right, and it's not uh, it's not just a matter of opinion anymore. That's a beautiful thing about these sorts of uh, institutional structures, and permaculture acknowledges that this could be a problem. Because if, it's, if it doesn't have those same rigorous controls and that same sort of uniform methodology, then it can that, – that very diversity that is prized can become a stumbling block. This lack of – like this lack of buttoned up, have a tie on, officialdom about it is part of the reason why people can glom onto – an idea of permaculture, and use that term to describe things that Mollison and Holmgren themselves probably wouldn't agree with. They probably wouldn't agree with this idea of um, some pseudoscientific stuff. But because there's not, again, an academic discipline around this, there's not really a way to stop them. It would be like if astrophysics was just whatever you described astrophysics as outside of a couple of vague fortune cookie sentences. You could also just sort of improv it and say, yeah, astrophysics is the study of like movements in astronomy, but also reading palms. You know what I mean? Like there's not really a way to stop it other than you saying, not really though. And then saying, well, that's what uh, astrophysics means to me. And you're being a jerk. Yeah, because it brings in permaculture does have a tendency, and I think in our experience upon researching this, uh, it brings in a lot of belief. 
So maybe one group's belief, one like movement within per- permaculture, sub movements within permaculture, the beliefs aren't shared amongst everybody. So then you can take a couple and then really run with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, you know, this happens in other places, right? To be fair, there are a lot of astrophysicists who disagree with each other, but their arguments are evidence-based, right? And their arguments are subject to the check and balance system of the scientific method, which doesn't always apply to some of these things that are, again, I don't know, there's like, like, Outside of those principles, outside of the foundational books, and outside of the three core ethics, uh, there's not a lot of canonical permaculture stuff other than that and the statements of big players in the field. So it could be a problem. It's true that the term permaculture is nebulous many times, uh, and people have chosen their own yes and definitions and takes on it. Um, What's another example? Oh, it's kind of like how uh, <laughs> it's kind of like how uh, a sandwich might mean thousands of different things depending on where you are in the world, right? And that's why not a hot dog, though. Definitely not a hot technically dog. Technically, it's a technically it's that's just, a sandwich too. You know, if an oh open face sandwich this is old a chestnut. sandwich, <laughs> right? Exactly. This old yeah. thing. What are we exact? What, so what are we judging a sandwich on? Is it just about conta- a piece of meat contained within bread? Does shape enter into it? Is it all about portability? Like, where do we? I'm sorry, I get I get, I get really worked up about this. No, no, I I remember this. Is one a quesadilla sandwich, well. Matt Ben? Mm, yeah, technically. But I I think another a more interesting thing that I wish people would talk about more is what is a salad. Technically, a salad is just a mixture of disparate elements. So herring salad, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's – permaculture is having the same problem is what I'm saying. There's no like uh, – there's no PhD in sandwich. There's no PhD in quesadilla. But if you took one of these courses or like dug a little deeper, I mean there are like specific procedures and recommendations and ways of going about this stuff as per their – Philosophy. I mean, you can look at it on the purely philosophical level, and I think it's really neat and useful in that respect. But if you dig deeper, I'm asking, like, if you took the class, are they going to teach you how to how to do it? Like how to actually do things procedurally? That's what Durs did. He took several classes uh, before he began his own company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, because context is key, like uh, any permaculture practitioner will tell you that the solutions you would need for sustainable development of a tropical ecosystem are going to be different from the solutions you might need for a more uh, savanna or prairie land ecosystem. So that's something they're very cognizant about. There's not necessarily a silver bullet, right? And saying that there's a silver bullet, saying that there's one set of plants or one set of practices you can use for any biome or any ecosystem, excuse me, that is misleading and it's incorrect. And I think every permaculturist from Mollison on down is well aware of that fact and very open about it. As a matter of fact, uh, Mollison's main criticism of conventional agriculture was that it wasn't sustainable because nothing about it was permanent. Uh, He said that we need to find things that fit the places, right? This is about observation. It's not about creating a new space. It's about helping improve the existing space that was, again, working way before humans got here. So he is trying to create 
feedback loops. I know I've been mentioning feedback loops a lot often. Feedback loops are not necessarily bad. They can be good, especially in these uh, kind of closed systems. So let's table that. Like we've acknowledged that there are concerns about the rigor or the approach to becoming canonical parts of the permaculture philosophy. But past that, to the second thing we mentioned, some scientists will tell you the entire aim of permaculture is missing the mark. I want to introduce this to a plant biologist named Ken Thompson. Ken's an author as well. Had this interview with the uh, British outfit, The Telegraph, and he's very British about this. Uh, He had a quote that stood out to me where he said, The trouble is that the average modern gardener has little use for basketry materials, fodder, game, or sap products, right? Because you're not wasting anything in permaculture. So you're you're growing something, you're thinking, how can I use this? Can I use this to weave baskets later? Can I use this to make sap that I can somehow refine? And his thing is, some gardeners, you know, they just, they want tomatoes, right? (laughs) <laughs> they just they want they want lilies. They don't need to in their minds they don't need to use everything. The one good thing is that you could uh just turn anything you don't use back into soil if you have enough time, if you're gonna be using that garden for a long enough time. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And and time horizon is a huge part of permaculture too, right? So that's what sustainability means. It's long term. So folks like Thompson and people who agree with him say, okay, permaculture is well-intentioned, but overall it's kind of naive or maybe overly ambitious, or it might not be effective for the needs of a lot of people in practical terms. Uh, He said that the idea of a forest garden fails in terms of scale and usefulness As you might imagine, permaculture enthusiasts disagree with him, but if you read his comparison – He's objecting specifically to the proposition that when managed correctly, a forest garden could feed four to five people per acre, which is, again, a lot of bang for your buck in terms of um, carb- in terms of caloric output, right? Calories, what people need to eat to stay alive. Do you know the chef? I think his name's Magnus Favakin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but I think he's Icelandic or some Nordic region. He's all about foraging. He's all about like all of his dishes are created using like foraged, you know, vegetables and things. And he has like a root cellar and uses all these very like old kind of techniques that that are very much in line with what we're talking about here. Um, But it's like, you know, it's a philosophy, but it's also like it, 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 it adds a certain creative spark and a certain connection to the land and to the region, you know, with his cuisine. And he's like, he was on one of those episodes of The Chef's Table on Netflix. Uh, I believe it's Magnus, but really interesting the way that that can be used almost like as, as a part of an art form and also like a communication kind of like with your environment and then to your your diners. You know, it's, it's I think it's neat. Well, I mean, it's a very cool thing, and it's awesome for, you know, a restaurant or even a couple of restaurants that one person owns, uh, but it's probably not good for feeding the entire population of the country that that chef is in, right? If you, I mean, you couldn't just forage for all the food to feed everybody in Iceland. No, it has to be scalable. Yeah, that's one of the issues is the idea of scale. You know, feeding 323 million people is different from feeding a community of 30. But anyway, when when Thompson's walking through this concept, he says, okay, well, maybe you could 
try to do something like that, but uh, will it be – it'll be edible, but will it be palatable? Meaning, will you enjoy it? Will, will you be happy living off these uh, these tubers, these trees, these boiled plants for the rest of your life? And then he goes back and forth on some examples, including one uh, chuckle-worthy response to uh, to an idea about uh, density of orangutans. Uh, and I don't want to ruin it for folks, but check out the Telegraph thing. Again, it's very British in the way he talks about it. Not necessarily mean, but but snarky. And Thompson is basically saying that what we're talking about is editing nature, the way you would edit a manuscript or a video, and that farmers and gardeners themselves are already editing nature just the way permaculturists do with a slightly different editorial eye. And he says the world right now at this point, it just might not be easily or reasonably fed via gardens. Before we move on, I'd also like to note, for anybody who's really mad about Thompson from that introduction, he wrote a book with a hilarious title that I plan to read. It's called, Do We Need Pandas? The Uncomfortable Truth About <laughs> Biodiversity. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. What do they, what do they, what do they ever do for us? Always going around karate chopping everybody, you know? Like, I'm just joking. That's... Was a Kung Fu Panda. I've never have you seen the Kung Fu Panda films? I haven't seen them. Um, you know what this does remind me? The philosophical side of this is is the panda. Uh, you know, bamboo is it grows wild, like it goes out of, out of control if you don't um, you know cut it back or take care of it. You got to wonder is the panda in some small way helping keeping the the world from being overwhelmed by bamboo? I don't know. Um, the, a lot of the kind of philosophical or even spiritual side of this permaculture stuff um, reminds me a lot the way it can be like adapted like to like lifestyle and just kind of like, you know, bigger picture thinking. Uh, there's a film called uh, Being There where um, Peter Sellers plays this character who's a gardener. His name's Chauncey and he's basically like he's lived in this old man's house as long as he can remember and the old man dies and uh, Chauncey just kind of like goes off on his own and he's sort of this like simple kind of character he doesn't really understand the outside world but he speaks everything he talks about he relates back to gardening and uh, in the film you know he's making all these everyone thinks he's speaking in metaphors um and he like ends up you know stumbling into these like elite political circles he'll say things like as long as the roots are not severed all is well and all will be well in the garden and the president's like, in the garden. Yes, in the garden. Growth has its seasons. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter, and then we get spring and summer again. And then the president's like, oh, it's genius, so insightful. You know, he's, but he's really just talking about, like, you know, actual gardening. But it is a system that is incredibly complex and fascinating and can be applied to the way we think about just life on Earth. So... You could argue that some of the criticism of permaculture's more fringy associated beliefs comes from this democratization of knowledge. That's that's something that we mentioned earlier. Uh, one of the issues here is that critics will say permaculture has become more of a religion or more of a cult than a collection of scientific beliefs. And they'll say, hey, this Holmgren guy, this Mollison guy, they're starting to be treated more like prophets rather than 
innovators or uh, leaders in the space, as corporate America likes to say. But that's not a problem with permaculture, I think. Not really. Not what its founders articulated. It's a social issue. Permaculture champions diversity. It's a design principle. And this means that it includes a diversity of ideas. It likes edges. So it welcomes some edgy ideas. And when people add their own concepts to those pre-existing thoughts, it means that it's often people, not process, that creates the problem. And guys, here, I just think we have to point out in an earlier episode, uh, we looked at some of the kind of nasty origins of some very good environmental movements like the Sierra Club had some racism tied up into it. When it was talking about conserving the natural environment, it was talking about or at least its founding fathers were talking about conserving it for a specific type of person rather than everybody. Eugenics! Yeah. Uh, and then more recently, old Dave, sorry, we, we don't know him. You're right, Ben. David Holmgren uh, was in the news and there was a public statement that he put out uh, about why he purposely chose to not get a COVID vaccine. Yeah, he's uh, he, he was if you read his statement, which is on his blog, you'll see that uh he was persuaded by something called the FLCCC Alliance, and that's an outfit that was promoting uh, ivermectin instead of the proven COVID vaccines. And he's really clear that this is his personal opinion. I think he writes very fairly about it, honestly. He just says it's not for me. But the problem is he is, again, a leader in the space. He is a luminary in the world of permaculture. So, like an author named Terry Leahy points out in The Politics of Permaculture, he has um, a transference phenomenon occurring around him. He has a lot of unquestioned credibility that goes far past his stated areas of expertise. It's sort of like when a um, – we talk about this in our upcoming book. It's like when a celebrity who's been in films that you like says something – about uh, – I don't want to keep picking on astrophysics. They say something about macroeconomics and they have not studied macroeconomics but because you liked them in a film, you are more likely to take their opinion as fact. This is a, a, a trap of charisma and it happens pretty often across the world. And when we say this, we're not saying, of course, that anybody is dumb at all. It's just your brain wants you to agree with entities that you have agreed with in the past. That's what's happening. So his words, just because they come from him, can be taken as statements of fact, even when he is very, again, the guy is very careful to say, this is my opinion. This is why I don't want to, this is why I am not getting vaccinated. He doesn't vilify people who choose to get vaccinated, or as the British say, get the jab. But his critics are rightly concerned that his followers might endanger their lives or others by taking his word as gospel, regardless of how carefully he caveats it. I mean, it makes sense. Think about it. If you truly believe you are hearing from a guy who came up with a way to save agriculture as we know it, then you're probably, for better or worse, going to treat his other statements and opinions with the same high regard. Uh, and then, again, the people problem goes beyond just just this idea of whether a public figure 
like what degree of responsibility they have to the public, right? It goes beyond this. The third principal tenant of permaculture, setting limits to population and consumption. This is by far the most controversial. Matt, you just yelled it out earlier. Eugenics. This conjures up the specter of overpopulation. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't think anybody who is I, I think at least the vast majority of permaculture practitioners would say, no, I am not a eugenicist. I think. Yeah. I mean it's weird. It's weird to rationally go through it because it certainly feels as though there are too many humans on the planet and way too many cars on 85. Uh, that's a highway here in Atlanta. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean we need to, uh, you know, wipe out a bunch of humans so we can make enough food for the smaller amount that now exists. There's some also really some interesting observations from the more right-leaning side uh, of politics who really do think that that permaculture is what we kind of mentioned before. It's too close to something that would be considered uh, not socialism necessarily, but uh, communism. I mean, it, it we already kind of joked about in the episode that it, it has shades of communism. It sounds like communism, right? Yeah, we well, they'll like they'll distribute the surplus back to the people, you know. I mean, you know, it's a good idea, <laughs> I would argue, but it's just not the capitalist way. So it's easy to throw the the c word around at it, you know. Well, yeah, and if there was government control over the, you know, maybe a mass permaculture system, then it would be socialism, right? A uh, government deciding who gets that surplus. Right. Yeah, but also if we're if we're engaging in structural thought if we're analyzing systems here, then we can see very similar things happening in a community of two dozen people as well as a community of a million people. So there would still possibly be uh, a threshold at which a, a, a government or a hierarchy, hierarchy forms, meaning that there could be a group of uh, four people in a community of 50, and those folks, whether they're called like the council or the elders or, you know, the big elbows or whatever silly name people come up with in those situations, they could still institute the same inequalities you see in larger systems. I, I would propose – uh, that for many people who say, oh, this is socialism, or for many people who say, oh, this is too idyllic, I would propose that the um, the problem really is not the application of permaculture techniques. The problem is the human piece of the equation, the human brain's hardwired limits on what it is able to conceive of as society. But that's maybe a story for another day. We do want to air some responses to the idea of socialism uh, from permaculture. Going back to the Permaculture Institute itself, they say, quote, permaculture isn't socialism. Practitioners aren't required to live on a commune, work for free, uh, or give away their excess. Permaculture doesn't preclude you from earning a decent living. In fact, permaculture can bring practitioners all kinds of benefits, including financial ones. So it starts to feel a little bit like a marketing pamphlet toward the end, but they are dispelling, I think, some some myths. This is not some Orwellian new world order where you exist as a peasant under the boot 
of the uh, of the ruling class, at least not the way they're thinking of it. I'd go back to Durs one more time. The guy started a company on his own in a capitalist system to, you know, work setting up permaculture projects for other people. So, I mean, th- there's nothing communist or socialist about that. No, not at all. And then there's this. This is where we get to the end, folks, and where we pass the plow to you. Uh, so permaculture is fascinating. Yes, it can have some really great benefits in specific situations, right? Because it depends upon context and diversity. However, it is not some sort of silver bullet, some sort of panacea to the problem of environmental degradation. Permaculture is heroic, but it is not messianic. And would the widespread application of these practices help more than it would harm? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Most likely, but it's not going to fix things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's not going to reverse global warming anytime soon, you know, because this is not a ding on permaculture. This is just a matter of how far down the slope the planet's systems have already gone. Instead, I think it's best for us to regard permaculture itself the way Mullison regards natural systems. Let's observe, let's consider these practices and these philosophies as part of a greater whole. Uh, To think in terms of analogy, permaculture is like one tool in a bigger box of tools, including things like nonprofit actions, government initiatives, activism, personal efforts to reduce, reuse, recycle, etc. So maybe the best way to end it is like this. In the right situation, permaculture can be a fantastic tool, like the best hammer you could ever buy, the perfect screwdriver, what have you. But it is crucial for everyone to remember that when you want to build a house, you need more than just a hammer. You need more than just a screwdriver. You cannot build a house with a hammer alone. And in this case, that house happens to be planet Earth. The only place humans live so far as we record this episode. I hope that ages poorly. I hope someone is listening to this on the moon or on Mars. Yeah, tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like you could build some kind of log cabin, maybe not a perfect one, but a log cabin if you just had a single axe. I think you could do it. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln did it. Everybody knows that. Lincoln logs. (laughs) Well, you would need to... Because you would you would need to uh, fill the gaps in between the logs, right? With a kind of sap. Um, it really goes down to what you consider a tool, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you don't need an actual right. mud. Well, let us know. Send us photographs. I'm just trying of to. The... You couldn't really gnaw the trees down. <laughs> yeah, send us send us photographs of the house you built with one tool, whatever it is, one tool other than money. <laughs> okay, smart Alex in the crowd, other than cash. A tool that you use your hands or your tentacles with, and just that tool, you built a domicile. Let us know. We can't wait to hear from you. Uh, thanks to Durs. Thanks to all our fellow conspiracy realists working in urban agriculture, working out on farms, all our folks who are currently studying uh, the fields of biology, the fields of agriculture. The world needs you, uh, and you're doing an awesome thing. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on permaculture. We try to be easy to find online. 
boy, do we ever. You can find us all over the internet. We are on Facebook. Uh, we are on Twitter. And we're on YouTube under the handle Conspiracy Stuff. On Instagram, you can find us at Conspiracy Stuff Show. Um, but there's more. Yes, if you want to call us, our number is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. When you call in, give yourself a cool nickname. We don't care what it is. We're excited to hear how creative you're going to be with your name. Let us know if we have permission to use your name and voice on the air. Then, hey, you've got three minutes or whatever remains of three minutes after you've done all that stuff. Uh, let us know what you think about this and any other episode. Give us topics for the future. Just tell us a story. Anything. Uh, tell us how you pre-ordered our book or ordered our book or however you got it. We'd love to hear that. And hey, the reviews are in. Kirkus Review uh, called it a delightful read. If you're into pizza, the Illuminati, and uh, some other thing. But Kirkus Review, man. I remember that from the cover of all the books I read when I was a kid. That's a big deal. Sorry, not to toot our own horn. mainly tooting Ben's horn. Yeah, we... Uh... We are excited wherever we are in the world. We want to bring you the stuff they don't want you to know, uh, whether in book form, whether in uh, podcast form, YouTube form, or in live formats. Uh, you'll hear more about that soon. Uh, all three of us are going to be hitting the road. We can't wait to tell you about it. You can follow our socials that Noel just outlined for more. And if you don't sip the social meads, if you like to stay a little bit off the grid, uh, if you don't like to use the phone, uh, then we of all people get it. Uh, three minutes sometimes just isn't enough. So instead of feeling like you need to call repeated times, send us those ancillary links. Take us to the edge of the rabbit hole. We'll see how far it goes. We cannot wait. We read every single email we get. That's a true story. I've written to some some of you, us listening now are like, no, you don't. And when you said that, I wrote back to you. So watch out, folks. If you dare, send us an email where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency and consistency scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality visit lazarusnaturals.com today lazarus naturals committed to improving your life as well as the world around you not available in idaho iowa or south dakota